On Sunday, August 30th, 2020, The Common Room held its virtual relaunch to discuss the topic of loving our enemies in a cancel culture. Joining us was special guest Dr. J. Anthony Snorgrass, who brings more than 30 years of expertise in media and communications. Dr. J. shared his insights on how the current media environment and larger social factors led to the creation of cancel culture. First, you'll hear Reverend Paul Rock leading us in a centering exercise and an intro to the series. I thought I would I would start us off with a um, uh, a prayer, and this is a prayer that comes from uh, Nadia Boltz Weber, who you might be aware of her. She is a, a, a Lutheran clergywoman, um, and this is uh, one of her honest prayers. Uh, and so I'm going to play a little music in the background, invite you to just get comfortable, and I'm just going to talk us through an opening prayer. Dear God, we are just going to keep taking turns for a while, if that's okay. Yesterday was my turn. Yesterday was my turn to be depressed, depressed as hell about the closing of beloved, been around for decades, local businesses, the weddings that I couldn't go to, the, the major life events that have had to be postponed. It was my turn to be afraid because the wildfires are so bad that my eyes sting and the interstate is closed because the ocean has come into shore again in Louisiana. It's my turn to be angry, my turn to indulge in post-apocalyptic future casting. Maybe I shouldn't have watched Mad Max last week. God, please help me not feel bad when it's my turn. And with your grace, may my turn to completely freak out not last one minute longer than it needs to but also may it last as long as needed in order to allow it to pass when its time is done and to move on and to do the things that I know I need to do, even if it's just making salad for dinner. And Lord, may I be a non-anxious presence to the next person whose turn it is, whose turn it is to freak out and to lose patience. May I not fear their fear so much that I will fail to be a good listener. And when I have even the tiniest extra bit of hope, may I go ahead and offer it without the fear of being judged for being too simplistic. And God, may I remember, may we remember that my terror, that our terror is not a sign of your absence and our hope is not a sign of your presence, because God, you never take turns. And for that, tonight, we give thanks. Amen. So, for those of you who have been um, following what's going on at Second Presbyterian Church, we have started what we've called a cancel culture and what it means to love your enemies in the midst of a cancel culture sermon series. And we've talked about how we need to be both uh, aware of the fact that this um, kind of uh, 21st century ability to 
publicly shame people or, or to come out in force against something that we feel like is inappropriate is on the one hand empowering for some people and is something we need to pay attention to. And on the other hand, it's, it's, it's uh, a little bit inadequate in terms of maybe moving forward the, the change in society that we want to see. And so we've been wrestling with this idea that we can't, you can't cancel cancel culture because it's happening. We need to listen to the rumblings, um, but we also need to figure out how we can maybe do it in a way as people of faith that advances love and reconciliation in the midst of, uh, of everything that the social media and social unrest um, allows for uh, in today's world. So that's our, that's our series. How do, you, how do you love your enemies in the middle of a cancel culture when that's the, the waters that we're swimming in? And we're fortunate to be able to have in our group uh, tonight, uh, Dr. J, Dr. Snorgrass, and I'm going to turn it over to Alex Treister, Professor Treister, who's going to uh, explain to you exactly why Dr. Snorgrass is with us tonight. Thanks, Paul. All right, so I'm excited for tonight. Um, excited to welcome our guest, Dr. J, uh, who I had the privilege of teaching uh, the sports media and pop, pop culture uh, class uh, earlier this year at Avila University. Uh, the idea behind the class uh, is that we explore uh, how sports and sports media serve as a microcosm of larger society. Um, and, and we uh, work with students and help them to see how uh, society can often work through larger social justice issues um, and bring awareness to those issues through the world of sports and sports media. Um, and as, as the events of this past week have shown, uh, that's as true as ever. Um, so I have no doubt that, that Dr. J has, has plenty of content for, uh, for the course this semester. Uh, but Dr. J uh, has a strong reputation in uh, branding, advertising, uh, promotion, and media. He brings uh, more than 30 years of experience um, as a public service uh, executive, a corporate executive, entrepreneur, and an educator in various communication venues. Um, he has a spirit for entre entrepreneurship. Uh, and has uh, started four different businesses throughout his career, um, including a haberdashery. He's, he always has impeccable style, and, uh, and, and that's part of the story, too. Uh, but he is a man of many talents, a uh, photographer, mixed media artist. Um, he uh, describes himself as a, a creative thinker um, who is, is looking for new solutions and uh, and rule bending when, when that uh, is called for, uh, to find solutions for community engagement um, and to, to find new creative solutions for communications. Um, he's taught at numerous universities and, uh, and currently serves as a communications professor at, at Avila and also uh, leads the uh, Center for Digital Advocacy, which I'd love uh, for him to talk about here in a moment. Um, but we're just excited to have him here to talk about this topic uh, with all the expertise that he brings. So join me in welcoming Dr. J to the common room. Oh, cut it out, cut it out, cut it out. <laughs> okay, thank you, Alex. You really carried me and I certainly appreciate that. Here's what I have for you tonight. A series of questions. Some of the same questions that I deal with on a regular basis especially when I was invited to the common room to discuss this very topic. Because I heard about this thing that 
you know, it's, it's killing all new ideas around the world. It is being discourteous throughout social media. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What is this new phenomenon? Because to me, this kind of thing's been around forever. In my younger days and in some of the youthful days, they used to call it dissing. We disrespect your position. In today's world, it's called throwing shade. So we just personally want to dismiss the very thought of your thought and maybe your existence while we do that. So the phenomenon that we're dealing with now is not a new phenomenon, but how we address it has to change. But before I go into that, let me tell you a little bit more about not what I have done in my career, but what sort of guides that path. First of all, yes, I hail from the world of advertising. And my literal job was to sell you on the fact that you've got a problem. And guess what? Once I can sell you that you've got a problem, <laughs> I got the solution for you right here. So advertising in its very essence is hmm, dismissive because it convinces others that there are failings that they have that they need to address when in fact those failings may actually be strengths. So my earlier background before advertising was in environmental design and urban planning where you begin to shape environments. You shape environments that Oh, determine how people behave within that environment. A successful environment has got to include three things, but most of all, it's got to have meaning. So when you go to church, when you go to school, when you go to work, those are all physical spaces that have been designed with certain objectives in mind. We'll get into the three things that I mentioned earlier in a little bit. But I'm also a media guru. Having to deal with advertising means you must understand the channels of communication and how to reach people. Now, strangely enough, in the world we live in, media has grown to become, they'll hate me for this, the fourth branch of government. They spew policies. They shape policies. They dictate what gets heard. They report to us what they feel we need to know. And the proliferation of the 24-hour news channel, as well as the, oh goodness, I can't even count them anymore, the mega media outlets, Bloomberg's of the world, that's a very controlled environment. Finally, I am a public policy maker. Prior to even moving into the area of advertising, uh, I worked for several levels of government. And the whole idea of government is to establish policies that serve populations, that serve people. So what does any of this stuff have to do with our topic tonight? Nothing and everything at the same time. It's really time for us to rethink who we are as a culture. 
who we are when we face canceling culture. Think about that. How do you cancel, how do you adopt or become part of a cancel culture? So I had trouble really thinking what was my true position on cancel culture given my background. Because in essence, cancel culture can have some positive aspects. Yet we see most of the negative aspects. I am one of those who believes that in order for us to have sustainable, long-lasting, positive policies, we've got to have three things. First of all, we've got to have a clear articulation of the problem. Then we've got to have politics that support the problem. And ultimately, we will get policy. So the articulation of problems oftentimes come from those people who we call hmm, advocates, activists, probably activists, because activists work outside the system. Their whole intent is to push new ideals forward. So if you wanted, if you were part of the system and you did not want to hear about or even be challenged with a new rule, what would you do? You would attempt to cancel the idea. So for me, there is a very positive role that possibly cancel culture can serve. And that is bringing new ideals forward that the establishment, that the system will either refuse to view or has gotten too comfortable to observe. So in essence, if we don't get our vision in order, it's going to be very difficult for us to articulate what problems need to go forward. So I mentioned the media and how it influences the problem definition, the politics, and as well the establishment of policy. The media has become a chorus for creating pressure. And that pressure oftentimes is heard by politicians who need our votes. And in doing that and keeping issues before the body politic, hopefully it will take some standing. Something may stick. But we know our body politic is very divided. Matter of fact, it is somewhat ostracized. Because even though we've got a right versus a left, it should be a right versus a wrong. We're having a little trouble refocusing everything to get to that point. So right now, my idea versus your idea, and if I am in power, I may have the ability to cancel your idea. Now, today I heard, and surprisingly, a young man that we all adore in the sports community here in Kansas City, Patrick Mahomes. And he was, came out in support of Black Lives Matter. And he actually called a press conference to address this. And what he said was, yes, I have haters. They've already started in on me on my social media. But I stand firm in what I believe. 
Now, he is in a position that is unique to professional sports, and I know Alex knows this, because he is an anointed hero on the sports field, and he has a political acumen as well. Now, there are those who will argue that sports and politics do not mix. Sports and religion do not mix. Sports and business, well, they got to mix because they, they're the same thing. Okay, <laughs> they're exactly the same thing. So if we begin to view what our athletes and our sports are becoming in this entertainment venue, they are much more than just sports. So Patrick Mahomes has decided, along with others in the NBA, that we're not only going to absorb the heat from the naysayers who will try to cancel us. I think you've heard the term, shut up and dribble. Have we not heard that term? Yep. Yeah, play your sport. This is not your arena. Your arena's down the street. So you're beginning to see that there's a certain activism that is being promoted by the athletes and entertainers and common people like me. Now, in order to be a good activist, you've got to have this characteristic called altruism. Now, altruism is the ability and willingness to give up something when you have something at risk. Now, it's very easy for people to advocate for things. I use the term advocate when they can spend some money, make a donation, they have nothing at risk. So the true activist of our world can only be powerful if they have something to risk and that makes them altruistic. Now, advocates on the other hand, don't necessarily work inside the system. Or excuse me, they don't work outside the system. We work inside the system. We work with the system from the inside. Let me get elected and maybe I can change things from the inside. I can address the system if I understand that system. We need advocates as well because they are instrumental in that policy making process. But ultimately what's got to happen is the problems have to come forward from the activists who are then joined by the media to advocate that case and push it forward. I think we always talk about having a voice. Where does that voice come from? It comes from the media. Yes, I can go out on my corner with my bullhorn and I can shout as loud as I want about what I believe in, but who is going to hear me, number one, and who's gonna listen, number two, because we're all so busy, what do we do? Walk on by. Or you cancel me by saying, hey, he's a lunatic out here on the corner. Nobody listened to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Why is he here? If he knew what he was talking about, he might be somewhere else espousing his philosophy. So cancel, cancel culture in that sense can work against the true activist from a personal standpoint. Now, does anybody watch CNN? I know, I know, you can't, 
You don't have to nod. You don't have to use the little button. You don't have to use the reactions or any of that. You don't have to do that. <laughs> I'm going to assume that you do. So, you know, Chris Como. Sure. Yeah. All right. And one of the things that Chris Como said that life is defined by how you manage your challenges and problems. That becomes life. So I'm going to recognize somebody before I move on. We know what that means? Okay. So I want to recognize him, Chris Bosner, not for what he had done as an actor, not for his roles, not for the images he brought forward, but the way he managed his issues, his problem. Nobody knew he had colon cancer. No one knew. He's prepping for roles while he had it. His publicist, who was supposed to have that very close relationship, didn't know. So my respect for him is that he didn't use his other roles, his actor status, to say, woe is me. Oh, I've got to step away from things. I'm going to step away from my activism because I'm ill. He moved forward with it without us even knowing. So I, I honor and respect him for that, Mr. Bozeman. So what do we do? How do we handle our issues? Are we afraid to post them on social media? If we post them on social media, which is one of the places that makes most people feel bad. You know, most of the time what we'll post on social media are those very positive, the glorifying things. Oh, I'm in the Bahamas. Oh, I just did this. I did that. I accomplished it. We don't even explain how we did it, what was involved in it, why we did it. But we are enamored by that accomplishment or that feel-good moment. Activism it goes with the warts as well. So if you're going to be an activist, you've got to be able to put your entire life forward because cancel culture will put it forward if you don't, because that's one of the techniques that is used. We look at some of the people whose lives have been affected by cancel culture that we now know are martyrs for our future. Martin Luther King, he advanced in a very sophisticated civil rights movement. But the naysayers, the cancel culture, was more focused on his personal life because that's what they wanted to move forward. Because they figured if we know these things about this man, we will not follow his message. The same thing for others, Mahatma Gandhi. Same issue, Malcolm X. So the focus becomes, let me find your warts. But thinking about act, former or past activists um, like MLK, like, like Gandhi, like Malcolm X, right. um, could they have gotten their message out in today's media environment? Or are there things that are they're constructed in, the, in our media environment today that prevent um, that kind of nuanced um, 
discussion from coming good, forward? Good question. It's a great question. I, I think at the time that MLK was uh, doing, and well, most of the, well, Gandhi even before that, what, we had three channels maybe? <laughs> maybe there was a couple of worldwide channels, but mostly three. It was on, it went off at 1030 right after the, the news. Yeah. So the only opportunities they had was direct influence with others through messaging. We went to sermons. We went to uh, rallies. We went to things where we could get that message, right? If they had the benefit of social media today, yes, it would have been a much stronger message, delivered stronger, but there also would have been more attacks. Because once we moved away from what we call traditional media at that time to this new place, and this is the space I want to talk about in terms of the environmental design, we now live in a digital space. It's not physical as much as it used to be. We've been home for a while. So we've been stuck. So our world has become virtual. And in that virtual space, everyone, through our democratization of the internet, has access to comment to as many people as will listen. So yes, they could have, but they would have dealt with a lot more uh, reverberations and challenges as well. And I guess the key would have been the test, Alex, is would they have been able to stay on message or would they have been overwhelmed by the negativity of what comes on social media? Right. I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to think that they were men of character and women of character that would have absorbed it and done what I mentioned with Chris Como, deal with the problems, still advocate for your position. I'd hope that would be the case. Yeah, and so the question I have as, a, as someone who's thinking about these digital environments is, and maybe this is still down the road a ways, but is it possible to create something, some kind of platform or some channel that would allow for uh, more, to, that would reflect more of the in-person um, kind of experience that, that you might have with somebody to allow for those kind of nuanced discussions um, to, that would reflect more of the humanity of, of activists or whoever you happen to be talking to. You're doing that. <laughs> this forum right here is that, okay? So of course we wanna grow that forum. We want to invite more people. We want to expand the circle. But the idea of social media was always, I wanna reach a few and have them reach the masses. So it's the distribution through others. So everybody here has a network of their own and they could invite people to the common room to chat. So then it begins to grow. And then you come up with common room two, three, four, five, common room for specific issues. And we've got a place where we can begin to entertain, you know, different ideas from people. And then the common room itself becomes that entity that moves things forward. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's why we started the common room. There you <laughs> You're go. Doing it. You're already <laughs> doing it. You're already doing it. Yeah. 
that the only question I got? I gave such a confused message well, and now I'll, everybody doesn't know what to ask me. Come on. <laughs> let me ask you one more question, then we can open it up to the group because I know the group has questions too, but well, but I also, I guess I also want to make sure I know, I, I think there might be more content of your, what you want to share as oh, well. Yeah, I so I, I don't, I don't want to overwhelm that either. And, and I don't want to overwhelm you with content because that's what professors do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's, let's give ourselves, let's give ourselves five minutes of questions. I got a stack of books right here. Oh, okay. <laughs> give us. I'm not going to do that. This, I thought this was a conversation, not a presentation. Okay. Good, 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 good. But. It's a conversation. I, I don't know about anybody else. I'm a nerd. I love to hear the content. So, you know, we'll, we'll give you five, ten minutes of questions, then we'll let you get back into it. Okay. All right. Dr. J, so what, um, with what's been happening in 2020, uh, I, I found it interesting from an advertising and branding perspective to see how there's been a number of brands that have, have been canceled. Yeah. Whether it's the Washington's football team. Right. Uh, you know, or uh, some of the universities that are having discussions about uh, mascots and, right. and changing. Um, that's something we, of course, talked a lot about in our sports media and pop culture class. Um, so Aunt Jemima. Yeah. Aunt Jemima. Yep. Uncle Ben. Yep. And so uh, it's, it's interesting to see these cancellations happen. But then sometimes the brands and the companies themselves are celebrating that and saying, you know, look how forward thinking we are, how progressive um, by doing this, uh, how, how authentic is that? And, and also what's our role uh, as, as consumers to be holding brands accountable um, well, to certain stages? I think it's a great question because we always try, well, let me back up. Brands try to connect with audiences. So when audiences shift, they feel the pressure to shift, except for the Washington football team, okay? And the Cleveland baseball team. They didn't feel the, the need to shift, despite the fact that society had shifted quite a bit. But you find that brands who are selling commodities are in a much more difficult position. So they like to be first to the party, first with the changes, I'm not sure that it's always genuine, but we'll take it. We'll take it because what happens is we get, we grow blind to these things after a while. And I don't want anybody to think that, no, I didn't have uh, Aunt, Jemima, Aunt Jemima pancake mix in my house. Yes, I had it in my house. Uh, you know, I had the syrup, we got all of those things because you buy them because that's what's in the market. Now, at some point, Yes, maybe I should have taken a stand. Maybe we should say, I'm not bringing that in my house. And let me tell my friends why when I invite you over for breakfast, uh, we've got K-roll syrup, <laughs> but that's it. So I think there's the little things that we get used to and that we accept over time, particularly with the brands. And those are not the only brands that have changed. You've seen brands who have changed their logos um, overnight. And it's not just to stay current, it is to reflect a more inclusive environment, a more inclusive culture, and to say that they are part of the movement. Now I'm gonna mention Cheerios because they were on the forefront. They didn't need to change their, their brand name at all. 
But you may notice that many of their commercials early on always promoted inclusivity. That was one of the first commercials where you saw an interracial couple with a baby. It was one of the first brands that brought, brought forth a gay couple into their environment. They moved forward. Now, the other product category that has been extremely positive in that area is our medications. The pharmaceutical industry is very progressive with their advertising. They're always on, and their branding, on the forefront of things. They move forward with that. I don't know what is behind it. I don't necessarily think it was because they feel that the world is more diverse, but maybe you sell more product if people see themselves in the ads, maybe. I'm not sure that answered your question, but that's, that's the best I got right now. Yeah, thank you. Are there other uh, questions that we have for Dr. J? Well, Dr. J, I had a question for you. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to phrase it, but it seems like I don't fully understand brands that are taking the clinging to tradition route as a way to appeal to their followers. Like you mentioned the, the, the Washington's teams, like something new, something fresh, like they change their, their, they change their imaging, they change all this stuff. And that seems like keeping up with the times, but then all of a sudden, like having something that's a little more um, politically correct, that's probably the wrong way to say it, but that's what I mean. No, that's um, the right like way to why, say it. why would a brand risk having uh, alienating a group when they could make a change and and relaunch and rebrand all stuff like is there what advantage do they have to appeal to tradition when it just seems like the way of things is to move forward and try to be as like you said inclusive as possible well you got buy-in you have investors and not everyone feels that in inclusivity and diversity is the way of the future. And oftentimes, there are those with resources who don't feel that way, okay? And in the sports arena, normally you have owners who are there. And the owners have certain perspectives, and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but if something's been working, why do I need to change it? I've got fans who still come, my, I'm selling out my, my arena. Why do I need to change? They fail to see that that team, that organization, is much more than just a sports team. It is a symbol for the city. It is a symbol for those who are playing on the team. And there's been nothing more offensive to me, insensitive, and I'm not trying, I'm not cancel culture, don't, don't hit me with that, and I'm not throwing shade either, but to see an African-American wearing the Cleveland baseball hat and we know that, that that logo is now gone, but it's like, come on, <laughs> wake up. That could be troubling if it were reversed. How would you feel? So brands are investments, and they are led by investors who built that brand over time. And it's still very difficult for many people to go with change. So in our community, is it Paseo or Martin Luther King's Boulevard? Or is it 
Look at the changes that are going on in Kansas City. Uh, is it JC Nichols Plaza or what's the new name? So people out of habit sometimes get stuck. And we get stuck in that because that's what we've known. And we're not attributing any values to it. It's just what we know. But now we're asking everyone to raise their consciousness, to think about those things. And as a result, maybe you become an activist and request change. So we've we got about 17 minutes left. And, and I would love to, if, if, if you've got five or 10 minutes of, of, uh, of headlines that you still kind of want to hit, Dr. J, that'd be yeah. great. And then we can, we can close with another five or so minutes of, of questions. OK. Uh, let, let, let me say this. In the media world, I grew up in early media, traditional media, when the role was media told you what to think about, but not what to think about it. So this is the issue. We're, we're going to put it out there, but you're going to make up your own mind. We live in an environment now where the media will tell you what the issue is and what you need to think about it. And all of their programming, all their broadcasting will support that one position. So it's incumbent upon us. Yes, I watch Fox News. Yes, I do, because I want to know what the thinking is. I want to, not that I agree with it, but I need to be exposed to it. So in social media today, there is a certain cocooning that happens because the way we have filled out our social media profiles, what we get back in return are those things that are like us. There is no additional diversity that comes with that. We get like kind. The algorithms are set up to where if I said I like baseball, then I'm gonna get all kind of baseball stuff. If I like Negro League, I'm going to get Negro League stuff. If I hate baseball and I watch hockey, then I won't get any baseball. I'll get all hockey. I'm talking sports here. But the same thing applies to other programs and policy positions as well. So you get that focus based on your profile. Now, I'm not suggesting anyone here do this, but I have had friends who have in the past created fake profiles just so they could see what else is going on or what others are saying. I've had African-Americans who've gone on and created a Caucasian profile just to see what messages are being delivered. Am I being left out of something? What's going on? So I want to know. And I'm not suggesting anybody do that, by the way, and don't, oh, wow, this is being recorded. Doggone it, forgot. Too bad. <laughs> So I'll live with it. But if we need to take the initiative to see others' perspective and not get stuck in our cocoon. And that's what Walter Lippmann, who is one of the philosophers, policy theorists that I follow, and his statement is, when all, I'm going to say, paren, men think alike, no one thinks very much. When all people think alike, we can get kind of lazy about the thinking. There's no challenges there. So we need 
differences of opinion. We need a diversity of opinion because I think that is necessary for us to make any kind of progress and move forward. Now, I mentioned earlier that I am, I love architecture and I studied architecture at the University of Kansas. And you shape space to control behavior, but not attitude. So when you walk into certain buildings, you can only turn a certain way. You can't go left. You can, we force you to go a certain way. So we can dictate behaviors by design of space. Courtrooms are designed a certain way to promote conversation. You, I don't know, hopefully you haven't been in many courtrooms, but if you ever get to go in one, you'll see these little alcoves in the hallways, the little benches set off to the side. The whole idea behind that is to provide an opportunity for negotiation and settlement. If I can get you together, then we don't have to go before the judge. We can work this out before we go in. But many people will not be open to any of those adjustments until they face the corridors of justice, when it gets real, as we say, because it could go anyway, either way. So in that sense, that design is prompted so that our behavior will be to listen and maybe compromise before we go down. Our social media space is not like that. There are no corridors that invite resolution. It's an invitation to throw mud. That's what it becomes. And that's what we do. And I don't, I don't, I'm not including you, but that's what's done. Mud is thrown. And there's no accountability for that mud. You don't have to justify your position. All you have to do is state your position. So because there is no dialogue, there's no thinking that's required. In fact, on most social media, and we'll use Twitter in this case, you don't have to give your real name. You can be anonymous. You can throw mud anonymously. Now they can find out who you are if you do some research, go in, you know, find out how you signed up. It's your username, it's what you go by. So that provides a certain protection for you to say all kinds of vile things, crazy things, and not have to rationalize or justify them. We need to begin to focus on the digital space we live in now. From a policy standpoint, Congress is beginning to do that. I don't know if you heard, but yes, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, all Twitter, all of them had to go before hearings, had to go and account for themselves. And there's a lot of pushback now coming from users about the use of their information and what what role these new spaces should play in the future. We want some accountability. Now you may have heard someone say this before, but I'm gonna tell you now, if it's free, you are not the customer. If it's free, you're not the customer. So that means they don't really have to owe you a thing. Thank you very much for all your information. We'll use it, we'll sell it, we'll package it. We'll do some data analytics on it. We appreciate it. But you get to use this vehicle to say whatever you want to say. But I've got the rest of your information. 
So the rule that I normally ask my students to do is number one, read the agreement. How easy is it for us to go through those things? Oh, there's an update. And what do we do? Go on, tell the truth. Accept, accept, accept. We don't even know what we're accepting. Uh, give away your firstborn, accept. Okay, I, I, I will get your mortgage for $3, accept. Okay, I own all your photos, accept. We need to read these things. There is some harmful legal stuff in that small print that if they ever wanted to use that against us, and sometimes they do, they could. But more than that, it minimizes our ability to challenge. Because now we have said, it's okay. I gave you permission to do this. So it's very difficult for us to, to advocate against social media outlets that we have supported by our signature. It's very difficult to be an activist against social media if in fact you've signed it on and you're using it to promote your social activism. So we're starting a trick bag there. We gotta find a way around that. We gotta be smarter about it. And I think the answer still is in addressing some public policies that, that begin to fall upon the very systems, and these are systems now, social media is a system that will govern them to protect the rights of citizens and to, to protect the rights of those who are least able to protect themselves. We've got to begin to push that very strongly. So the only answer for our systemic problems, systemic racism, the use of uh, our systematic uh, economic um, disparities is through policy changes. And unfortunately, remember where I started, I told you there were three things that has to happen for a policy to be effective. Should I ask you what they are? The problem, we gotta know what the problem is and we gotta be specific about the problem. The politics has to be in place, and then we've got to deliver on policies to address that problem. Right now, our problem is in that second one. The politics are confrontational. The politics are not compromising, looking for a way to solve the problem. In fact, our politics now, we cannot even come to a common answer on what the problem is. I know in one party, it is civil unrest and we need criminal, uh, we need, uh, what is it? Law and order. Law and order, that's it, law and order, right. On the other side, we need, um, uh, uh, what is it, what's the term, help me out. Defund. Defund, yeah, so where are we? How are we gonna bring those positions together? Understanding is the way. So I'm not opposed to law and order. I'm also not opposed to defunding the police for the right reasons if we understand what the term means. So we've got to dig into the literature and not listen to what the media, not listen to what 
the other parties have to say about what that means or the consequences of it. We've got to figure that out on our own. We've got to dig in. I'm not here to justify either position, but I know answers are out there if you want them. Dr. Snorgrass or Dr. Jay, I've got a, a I, I don't want to be dystopian in my in my view of, of where we are as a society, but as <laughs> part of me as I listen to you, I think what's what's going to make people like us actually read the disclaimers and say, no, actually, I don't agree or whatever. I mean, you know, there, there's part of this that it, it feels to me like we are a, just a whole um, we're just a no matter what kind of culture country you're from, we are just a, a world of lemurs that are heading off of a cliff. Um, and, I, and I just wonder if there's a way, the, the question that I have is, so I heard just today that um, the um, Donald Trump's State of the Union address had 25 million viewers in, in January. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when Nancy Pelosi tore up his speech behind him and you know all these memes were formed. The next day, Donald Trump Jr. created a meme of all of the times his dad was saying things that were at least not offensive, like where he was recognizing the Tuskegee Airmen person or whatever. And And then he interspersed that with her tearing, you know, so he created a meme that wasn't even real, um, but it basically showed Democrats dismissing anything even, you know, normal, you know, non um, confrontative that, that Donald Trump was doing. It got 50 million views in a week. And so one meme that Don Trump Jr. created got twice as many views as the State of the Union. And and all those memes are made to do is just to, you know, make you pissed off or whatever. So I just, there's part of me that wonders, are do we just hold tight and watch this whole thing just burn? Or do we put up the fight and say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna try to we're gonna try to move for for discourse and 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 rational you know um, understanding and 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 all. I, I just sometimes I just think no. I think that actually the whole thing has to burn, and I think we'll just let the, the let the media moguls take on the presidential you know uh, politics and 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 let the best meme win, and and that it all it all goes down, and then we build from there. Right, and that's an interesting perspective. The challenge, though, is yes, memes are not real, and but they're entertaining. So it's very easy for us in our frustration to look for entertainment. I know people know that those are not real, come on. But it articulates a position that they find entertaining. Now this is where the media comes in and it doesn't help us because the media breeds on controversy and discord. Give me something to report on. And that's what drives others. I'll give you something, you need something? Let me whip the speech. She knew where that was going. Oh, I'll create a meme. I'll give you something. Get it out there. Years ago, I, I got rather disappointed because I was involved with, with real, well, social media is real media, digital media is real media. But at that time, it was just coming on. And I heard a newscaster use Facebook as a source. Now, in journalistic terms, that's a no-no. How do you corroborate something on Facebook? Okay, we're supposed to follow certain principles before we put our name to it. But they the have credibility. Yeah. yeah, and at that point I said, whoa, it's a whole new world out here now when you're getting that over a broadcast. Something that I took off Facebook is hitting the news table 
And we have editors there whose responsibility it is to look at those things. So let's not let it burn though, Paul. Okay. Because if it burns, we burn too. That's true. I'm not ready to give it up yet. (laughs) I know my hair is gray and I I don't have as many years as everybody else has, but I would like to at least stay in the fight (laughs) for a few more years. Well, I think that's the thing that, that, you know, I'm the oldest white guy in the room here, but you know, I, I, I just, I just think, gosh, darn it. We have screwed this up so badly. Um, but then, you know, I'm being, I'm being extra cynical right now, but then I, you know, I hear somebody like John Lewis, who, uh, you know, in, in the months before he died, the, the incredible stories that he was telling, the things he was saying, and, and that, that level of, of compassion in the midst of his passion and, and the love in the midst of his, his conviction was, uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so impressed by that level of, of, uh, of, of, of valor and of and of uh, and of character. Um, I, I I don't know if that's I don't know if we're going to find that today, but I, I sure sure am impressed well, by it. But we've gotten we we've gotten somewhat spoiled in our society today for looking for that instant reward. We're supposed to do that, make a couple of moves, and it should change. You know, John Lewis fought for 45, 50 years, and what change did he see? And he was happy with that change because he saw progress. Of course, he wanted more. There should have been more, but civil rights, voting rights act, you're saying it goes back, comes back again. Now, it's in, now we're debating that again. So yes, he knew he was a warrior and he knew that he would take his, the battles that he had won and cherish those and continue to fight. So we've got to do that same kind of thing. It's not going to happen quickly. You know, I tell, tell my son all the time that, and he's 30 something now, I, it's not going to happen in my generation because we already messed it up. Matter of fact, we probably complicated it too much. But it can happen in yours, but you got to keep fighting. You got to still look positive. Now, a little side story if, if we got time. We're okay with time? A little, a little side, side story about John Lewis. Um, the march in, in Selma, and this is related to Avila University as well, and the sisters of St. Joseph were in Selma. Uh, at that same march. And they had been told uh, that they could not participate or they would be defrocked, so to speak. So what they did is said, well, we're going to march anyway. And those of us who can't march are going to go to the hospital to help out with those who may be injured in this march. And that was the only hospital that would treat African-Americans, Negroes at that time. And John Lewis was sent to that hospital. So the likelihood that one of the sisters of St. Joseph, who was there, actually treated him. And that's been one of the legacies of Avalon University, how the sisters, and you'll see that in a lot of promotions for Avalon, a lot of the artwork that we do uh, about advancing causes, You'll see sisters who were protesting and actually stood up against the priest and said, you can't tell us that we can't march. But some of us are afraid because we don't want to lose out. Those who aren't will march. The rest of us are going to the hospital. So I, I love that story about finding a way to be of service and be in the cause 
even though you've been told not to. Now, I ain't done. I'm not done. <laughs> Alex invited me. He knows me. Okay. Yeah. See, most of the issues that we've been talking about today, we try to address them with what is called civil law. And in fact, you know, most of the, fi the fights early on were about civil rights. Mind you, not equal rights, civil rights. Just be civil. Okay. So that's not a way to truly address change. Real change has got to come from a couple of other laws. And one of them is moral law, and the other one is spiritual law. Those laws have to govern this civil law that we fight so often for. We've got to get way beyond that. So moral law, is it right? Is it best? Spiritual law, does it rest well with what I have been taught by the scriptures? That is what I think is very important as we move forward. Civil law gets involved in the courts. That's where it goes. Right. And even if we pass a law, then there are issues about who's going to enforce it, what does it take to enforce it, maybe we just won't enforce it. Yep. Spiritual, moral should override all of those. And even if they're civil laws, maybe if we implement them using our moral and spiritual guidance, we might find some different results. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be. I'm going to close on that. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a, that's a hopeful place to close. Thank, thank you so much, Dr. J. I've, uh, I have posted a prayer that is attributed to St. Francis okay. that, um, that actually, uh, I don't know that he actually wrote this prayer, but it's called the Prayer of St. Francis, the, the Prayer of Peace. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me instead sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And in both living and dying, we are God's eternally. May that moral and spiritual truth hold us all until we meet again. Amen.